Take your Bible, turn to Job chapter 30. Preaching three chapters today, but really only going to read one. Job chapter 30, this is Job's final speech in the book. As he's been conversing with both God and his so-called friends. Job chapter 30, starting in verse 1. But now they laugh at me. Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. What could I gain from the strength of their hands, men whose vigor is gone? Through want and hard hunger they gnaw the dry ground by night and waste and desolation. They pick saltwort and leaves and the leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. They're driven out from human company. They shout after them as a thief. In the gullies of the torrents, they must dwell in the holes of the earth and of the rocks. Among the bushes, they bray under the nettles. They huddle together a senseless, nameless brood. They have been whipped out of the land. And now, I have become their song. I am a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me because God has loosed my cord and humbled me. They have cast off restraint in my presence. On my right hand, the rabble rise. They push away my feet. They cast up against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They need no one to help them. As through a wide breach they come, amid the crash they roll. Terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind, and my prosperity is passed away like a cloud. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You've turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind, you make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death, to the house appointed for all living. Yet does not one in a heap of ruin stretch out his hand and in his disaster cry for help? Do I not weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came. When I waited for light, darkness came. 
My inward parts are in turmoil and never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. I go about darkened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I am a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin turns black and falls for me. My bones burn with heat. My lyre is turned to mourning. My pipe to the voice of those who weep. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would provide blessing to your word. We have read it, and now we ask that you would speak in its preaching, just as you have in its reading. Give our minds understanding and give faith to our hearts, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. We stand in an interesting time in our country. Certainly if you watch the news, which most of the time I just advocate that you don't. I don't tend to think it's usually helpful, but if you've been watching the news this week, we've entered into uh, a national conversation as to what justice and righteousness looks like for one particular people group in our community. I think the thing that's been the most intriguing to me about this has been not just that we've entered into this conversation as to what justice looks like with each other, but we've entered into this conversation with the state. Again, you see, uh, you know, I saw one major city uh, this end of this week where uh, they were enabling protesters or the writers, I don't know which, to actually paint parts of uh, the city that belong to the government itself. Wow, you're helping people deface public property. It's going to cost the state thousands of dollars to, to repair. I mean, you're painting huge swaths of the city. What an intriguing thing that we're entering into conversation as a a community, as a country, even with our government, as to what justice looks like. What does it look like to receive proper treatment and care? Interestingly, providentially, again, I I love uh, Lectio Continua preaching or preach through the Bible. I I would never uh, have thought, "Hmm, I should preach Job 30 today. But what an appropriate chapter is. Job wrestles with similar types of questions. Now, interestingly, Job is is appealing to a higher priority. (laughs) His conversation about justice isn't a conversation uh, with his neighbors. He's already had that for the previous eh, 20 chapters or so. It's not a conversation with his government. He kind of in many ways functionally is his own government. He was one of the elite ruling uh, class before this happens. No, he's entering into a conversation with his God. Where he's saying, oh Lord, we need to have a conversation, you and me, about justice. Righteousness and how you have treated me. You remember the flow of the book at the very beginning. Uh, Job is introduced by God as uh, the narrator here is as a righteous man. 
even having it endorsed, endorsed in heaven. God's saying he is a blameless man. Uh, you look at the, the rest of the world around and you would be hard pressed to find a portrait of godliness any clearer than this man. Satan comes in with accusation. Well, look, he only loves you for your stuff. He only loves you for your blessing. He only loves you because you're kind to him. He doesn't love you for who you are. Not a fair accusation, but uh, one that certainly uh, I think would fit many Christians. The Lord allows for Satan to basically take everything away. In a moment, he goes from being the richest man in his area to the poorest He goes from a man who has blessed in his home with a wife and ten children, those ten children enjoying each other, loving each other, embracing each other, and all of them gone in a moment, just left with his wife who is uh, a source of bad counsel (laughs) at the time. After a second interchange, his health is taken away from him. And here, even at the end of this chapter, we see a little bit more as to what he's dealing with. It's probably some sort of kind of leprosy condition where his skin is actively rotting off. My skin turns black and falls from me. My bones burn with heat. He's spiked a fever. Whatever it is, leprosy, whatever it is, his skin's rotting off. Not in a good place. Not in a good place physically, not in a good place emotionally, not in a good place financially. He's not in a good place. In fact, actually, the rest of the book, by and large, takes place uh, in the city dump. You would take your trash out to the city dump and you would burn it, which would create a very large ash heap where you burned all of your refuse. And he's sitting on top of that ash heap having a conversation. He's talked with his uh, three friends. We call them friends. They are faithful to him in many ways. They go and sit with him in the mess for a week. They don't even talk. They just grieve with him. And that is a home run until they start talking. At which point they overspeak largely because they presume to know God's mind. And what they do is they look at the circumstances in front of them and they try to read the circumstances instead of reading God's promises. And the circumstances look like Job was doing well. Now Job is the worst of the worst. Obviously, Job did something wrong. And they have this very complicated kind of cyclical sort of conversation where each of the three speak and Job answers and it, it kind of increases in intensity even to the point where it finally breaks down. They continue to call Job a windbag who refuses to acknowledge his sin. He refuses to agree with them instead saying, I have not earned this destruction. Chapter 28, we had last week where it kind of this interlude in the book presenting instead for us this challenge of saying, look, the, the mistake the friends made was to read the circumstances apart from God's promises. They tried to look at the, the events around them apart from God's explanation of who he is. And chapter 28 kind of corrects our vision to say, well, if you want to know where the truth is, where do you look? Wisdom is only found with God. You want to know how to read circumstances uh, to interpret the world around you. The only place you can look to do that is God's word, where God is, who God is. 
Now 29, 30, and 31 is Job's final speech. It's his last kind of address. From here we turn to his fourth friend who... um, Slightly different than the others. And then God speaks. And so in these three chapters, we get kind of uh, the final glimpse of what's going on in Job's mind. Chapter 29 is lovely. Would have been a fun one, an easy one to to preach, a a great joy. He here just simply spends an entire chapter kind of poetically meditating on all of the blessings that God had given him throughout his life. God had blessed him. It was like a light was shining on him. Verse 3, everywhere I walked, light followed me. My life was marked by no darkness. If I walked into a dark place, light came with me because God's blessing was upon me. Verse 6, some of you will appreciate this depending on your dietary uh, preferences. The Almighty was with me when my children were all around me, even when my steps were washed with butter. The rocks poured out from his streams of oil. His blessing even goes out to his culinary delights. He's provided with safety and sure footing in the midst of slippery times. He's blessed in every way. Seven and following explain how he's respected in his community. Fourteen and around there, he's even acknowledged to be a source of great wisdom and great benefit and was used to help other people. I mean, look at verse 21. Men listened to me and waited, and I kept silence for my counsel. I spoke after they did not speak. Word they waited for me as they did for the rain. I love how Job here in this kind of final discussion about. What's going on in his condition takes a a real and hard and honest look about how God had blessed him in the past. And it's intriguing too, I would suggest here that um, the way that he acknowledges this is is the Lord's blessing upon him and not, uh, he doesn't say, look at how marvelous I was. I was smarter than anybody else. I was better than anybody else. I was braver than everybody else. I was the best. Instead, he contemplates the mercies that God has given. And I'm going to humbly suggest that in chapter 30, we're going to turn to something much darker, but a general good rule of thumb as you deal with grief and loss and sorrow, which we all are going to do at any point, you know, at some point in our lives, I guess. But a general rule of thumb is is to make sure that while you're suffering, you're actively combating that with contemplating God's mercies to you in the past. In the nature of the human heart, you probably have already felt this in some form or fashion, is to be uh, unbalanced and to think only one thing at a time. And so when we get uh, forced in circumstances to interact with difficult things or difficult days, it's, it's our natural human propensity to only see the negative. To find ourselves in circumstances and think there is no light at all. 
It's intriguing. Here you have a man who's just lost his 10 kids, lost his entire fortune, lost his entire uh, health. He's actually even already framed out. He wants to die, but God won't let him. And in his final speech, and this, this speech is particularly directed to the Lord, he begins it with a conversation about God's mercy and God's blessing. Doesn't begin it with a conversation about his rights. Doesn't begin it with a conversation about what he deserves. Doesn't begin it with a conversation about how he is currently not getting what his neighbors are getting. He begins it with a conversation about how God has showed mercy to him in the past. How richly blessed he has been. I wonder in our kind of national moment today, how might the voices of Christians sound differently if this is a tactic that we employ consistently? That when we go to talk about hard things, that we make intentional efforts to, in our minds, think through the mercies of God. It doesn't stay on that theme, obviously. Chapter 30, he turns to the now. He turns to the loss. He turns to the sorrow and the difficulty, processing all of the grief around him. And in this chapter particularly, his complaint goes to his God. And and to me, it's incredibly intriguing. He does not really, really at all say, why did you do this, God? That's intriguing to me that that's not one of the things that he's really arguing for is why. Now, it's implied in the background I mean, I know that if it were me, I would have been sitting there in the ash heap saying, why did you take my kids? Why did you take my kids? Why did you take my kids? And that's not what he's doing. In fact, actually, he's lumped his hardships into categories, uh, categories that are very useful for us uh, as we reflect on it. Verses 1 through 14. He complains to God about how he has been made a laughingstock, a source of mockery. In fact, actually, this is uh, for, uh, I would say, modern commentators. This is a really interesting section of the book because they have to figure out what to do with Job is he complains that the losers are making fun of him. Fathers who I would have disdained even to set with my dogs. (laughs) The people who are now making fun of him are such bad losers, he wouldn't even trust them to take care of his sheepdogs. These low-quality humans, the ones who don't even know how to manage their own lives, verse 7 implies they're almost as bad as wild animals. These wretched people have now been placed in a position where they can mock him. Where they can ridicule them, uh, him. In verse 9, I've become their song. Right, when they make their little uh, silly sing songs, I am the one they use to tease. 
I am the one they use to ridicule. I am a joke to them. They don't hesitate to spit at the sight of me. All because God has humbled me. It's intriguing to me how uh, this is a category that um, (laughs) I think for most of us probably wouldn't have been the one that we would have led with. Again, I would have led, you took my kids away. Some would have said, you took my livelihood away. Others are like, my skin is literally rotting off and I'm about to die of a fever, but you won't kill me. And it's interesting that he says, look, God, what you have done is made a mockery of me. You've made a mockery of me. And I suspect what he's hinting at here, and it's deep-seated in terms of his complaint to God specifically, is to say, I am your man. I have spent my life connecting myself to your name. And what will people say about me now? In fact, actually, what will they say about you now? If you're my God and everybody knows that you're my God and I've pledged myself to you and I've spent my life obeying you and following you and now I have become a source of ridicule, they ridicule you just as much as they ridicule me. Scriptures do not take kindly to mocking God's people. You remember that's why the Edomites are ultimately destroyed. When Israel and Judah are invaded and suffer God's wrath, the Edomites stood by and they laughed. They mocked God's people for the judgment that they received righteously, interestingly, from their God. And what did God do? He restored Judah and then he wiped the Edomites off the map. Can't go visit Edom right now. I mean, you can visit the remains of it. Those people are gone. God destroyed them for mocking God's people. I would maybe make one very quick pastoral note in this regard. One of the things that I have, I think, probably seen pastorally over the last two months uh, is that I, I don't think I have ever witnessed a time in which people's views have been quite so polarized and in which it has been quite so quick for Christians to mock other Christians. I think that's been very shocking to me. And to think about how many times actually we as Christians have served the function of the bad guys in the text here. I'll just go ahead and challenge you to think about it. Well, you go to think about any of the conversation related to COVID-19 or any of the conversation uh, related to um, all of the protests and rioting and any of that, any of those sorts of conversations at all. I would lovingly encourage you, be very careful that you do not mock those that carry the name of Christ. 
That's Job's first complaint is that, look, the bad guys, they mock me, they ridicule me. I have had my name pledged to yours and now they ridicule me. They ultimately ridicule you, but that's not it. Verses 15 through 18, it turns to a much, I think, just darker. I, oh, this one's hard. Just as they have mocked and ridiculed, well, there's a reality is that something else is after him too. There is a terror, a dread that falls upon him, that chases him, even to the point that it's, it's destroying him from the inside out. It feels like everything is out to get him, and guess what? It is. <laughs> He's lost everything he has to lose except for his life, and that would be the easy way out. As the mockery to deal with, he has these uh, deep-seated terrors of the, the world is chasing him out to get it, it, which is 100% true. But worst of all, problem number three, verse 19, he understands why it's all happening. Because God has done it. That's the hard part for him is that he knows that it is his God that has cast him into the mire. He knows that it's his God that has made him like dust and ashes. He knows that it is his God that is in charge of it. And though he has cried to him for help, he has received none. I stand and you only look at me. Even verse 21, and I'm going to be honest, I, I'm... You have turned cruel to me. Okay, so here's my answer on what I think is going on with Job. I think Job is a righteous man, and I think Job has a righteous uh, cause and a righteous complaint. I think Job's struggle, and you're going to see that he gets rebuked in the end by God, is that Job gets at some points so overwhelmed with um, the scale of what's happening to him that he overspeaks. I'm going to lovingly suggest, I think verse 21 is one of those. The Lord's never cruel to his people. He may deal hard things, but the Lord is love. The Lord is kindness. The Lord is gentleness. He certainly deals hard truths with his people. But he's not hateful to them. Job's struggle, though, is as he's wrestling through this situation, he knows that it's his God that has done it and that his God is not listening. He's cried out for help and his God is not listening. And then verse 25 through 31, the end of the chapter, he acknowledges that I didn't, I didn't earn this. It's not like he's saying I, he didn't have some secret wickedness that was hidden in his heart. It wasn't uh, that he had some great evil that he had squirreled away or was doing quite publicly. Instead, he was a righteous man. And in fact, actually goes to spend in chapter 31 exactly what his ethics look like. These ethics are marvelous. I'm going to go so far as to say that. They're marvelous. He, he is acknowledging things that even in the time in which this was written probably wouldn't have necessarily been considered um, by the average culture to be things that are necessarily even evil. Example, verse 1 of chapter 31, I've made a covenant with my eyes, famous verse there. 
I made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Uh, What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Uh, What he's acknowledging here is that he's committed even to sexual purity in a time that that wasn't necessarily really on, on the table. Uh, unfortunately, in this time, women were much more treated like a commodity and treated like possession. And if you wanted to buy, you could. You wanted to have multiple, you couldn't. I'm not saying that's right or good or we should, you know, that's not a good thing. In fact, Job is actually saying that he's countercultural in the sense of he's committed to God's holiness, uh, even at the expense of the culture around him. He's a righteous man who has displayed that over and over and over again. Working through that in the chapter. Saying that he has displayed God's holy values. This is again at the end of chapter 31, I think, where he runs into a little bit of a problem where he begins to call out God to answer him to showcase his righteousness. And again, I I think what he has here is is a good idea. It's just maybe over-executed. It's a bit overdone. Look in verse 35 of chapter 31. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Ooh, that is a bit strong, Job. You sure you want that from God? Okay. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. I'd love to be able to answer charges. If I had charges, I could answer them. And you know what? Fair enough on that one. I understand that. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps like a prince. I would approach him. If my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I've eaten its yield without payment, if if I've done anything wrong, I would answer those charges. And I think this is probably where Job finally tips over into Uh, I think probably into sinful thinking. Where he's begun well in this section, particularly 29, meditating on God's blessings, meditating on how God shows his favor to his children. Then in 30, genuinely and really wrestling through uh, the difficulties that he's going through and how he has become a, a, a source of ridicule, that it's, it's bringing shame to God's name. I love that. He, he doesn't even look out for his own interests ultimately in that section. Then showcasing the, the values that he's committed to, not using his hardship as an excuse for evil. You realize that that is so human. Well, I'm having a hard time, so I'm allowed to do this thing that's evil. I'm having a hard time, so I'm allowed to do this thing that's evil. In fact, I, that's on my opening introduction. We're watching this very interesting conversation happening with the U.S. government saying, are we actually going to let people commit felonies because we have hardship in the land? Either hardship connected to disease, either hardship connected to um, you know, real and genuine, honest, serious questions connected to justice. What do we do? But 
But Job tips the scales at the end where he calls out God saying, if I could simply answer my accuser, then I would be okay. It's one thing to wrestle through our difficulties. It's one thing to acknowledge acknowledge the challenges that we're going through. It's something completely different to then push it onto God to say that He is the one who is wrongly, evilly, sinfully, and unfairly going after His beloved child. And I appreciate so much how God displays this human response because, brothers and sisters, I I hate to break it to you, this is the exact path that we tend to take when we're doing, uh, handling our struggles probably well. When we're handling them badly, we've never made it this far down the line. We've jumped off into pity parties way, way, way earlier. But this is the challenge of a good biblical, robust biblical faith that understands that God is big and God is great and God is in charge of everything. The challenge comes that when we run into genuine, real, hurtful, difficult times, to know that our God is in charge of those difficult times and still not charge Him with injustice. Not charge Him with showing favoritism. Not charge Him with being cruel or unkind, not charge him with even so far as to say wickedness. And and I'm real quickly would love to just kind of frame out just for our minds when we go through this. If you have not suffered deeply yet, you will. It's part of the human experience, uh, unless the Lord Jesus comes back like right now, which would be awesome, or somehow takes you home early, which would be great for you, terrible for us. The, Job, the problem that Job has, I think, here, and the problem that really ultimately all of his friends have, is that when they, they finally get to the end of it, at, at really the, just brass tacks at the lowest level, when they go to evaluate these terrible circumstances, they are not filtered through God's promises correctly. And I would say lovingly, uh, I show great, I have great compassion for them because this is likely taking place around the time of Abraham. So they don't have all of those promises written out the way that we do. Now, granted, they've probably heard them from Noah's kids or grandkids or some sort of relationship connected there. But they don't have the scriptures written out that we do. But realistically, this is no less of a battle for us. When we have hard times hit to not immediately have pity parties of some sort or to wonder if God is still good to us or is he doing good things for us or he suddenly turned into Murphy's Law or some sort of evil God in the sky who's out to get us and instead the remedy is to fix in our mind his promises. So I quote Romans 8. I think since the quarantine started, I've quoted Romans 8 more times in my ministry than any other 10-week period in my life. What can separate you from the love of God? 
and angels, nothing, nothing inside creation. Nothing inside creation, including you, including anything else, can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is why it's so important for us to be Trinitarian. If if we only believed in God the Father, there would actually be the possibility that we might be able to say, well, that God is angry with us and we hate him and he hates us. Instead, we have this very clear portrait in the scriptures, these very clear promises where it says, look, that father loved his children so much that he sent his only begotten son inside time and space to become one of those people. And while those children were wicked, enemies hating their God, that son stepped inside time and space and gave up his life. So that those wicked, wicked people could be redeemed from the pit, be redeemed from hell, be redeemed from the grave, be made new, be transformed and actually become children. Become his brothers and sisters in the family of God. And if that weren't enough, he then gives his spirit to his people now as a guarantee of these promises. You know what? You don't ever have to doubt, does God love me? He gave his son for you. That's proof. He gave his spirit to you. That's proof. You have proof living in your soul right now. So that when we do arrive at these difficulties, and you know what? Again, they will happen to us. It equips us to grieve and to cry and to mourn and to throw ourselves into the depths of the loss and to to have such great sorrow and sadness, but never question if God is doing something good. Because I know he loves me. Because I have proof. You can't go back on that. I have proof. The beauties of believing in a triune God. May it be that even as, again, we enter into this kind of national conversation, maybe in your community, maybe in your home, maybe in your neighborhood, whatever it is, that we get to showcase something a little different because we are Trinitarian Christians that believe in a God who is faithful to his promises, even to the end. Father, we thank you for your word that it challenges us to think differently and feel differently and to act differently. Lord, if it simply challenged us and left us kind of (laughs) left us with that, we'd be a mess. But instead, you challenge us to be different, but your spirit makes us different because because Jesus has accomplished that difference. Oh, Lord, work your grace in us. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen.